It's commonly accepted that houses make better investments than apartments, but is this a fair comparison? Should we be challenging the assumptions that underlie that claim? And if we do so, what factors should we be on the lookout for? Anything that's been built over the last 10 years will wear and tear considerably. You know, a developer is only worried about one sale. That's the first sale. They don't care about resale. So it's they either got a body corporate's got to spend a lot of money on upkeep or, which is more likely going to happen, the property will wear and tear and look terrible. And I think then um, those older style that are typically double brick, built really well, higher ceilings, you know, um, more room, will start to have a bit of a renaissance. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Stuart Weems has recently released a report called The Performance Review of Investment Grade Apartments and he's joined us today to share his research and insights into what the future could hold for apartment owners. Now, Stuart is a financial planner with a really good understanding of property and he has written numerous books about both finance and property as well as being a regular contributor to The Australian. He also hosts a podcast called Investopoly. One of his books has the same name and has a particular gift for explaining financial concepts in a way we can all understand but I love the fact that he always looks to the evidence. Now, this isn't the first time we've interviewed Stuart. You can all, you can go back to listen to episodes 39 and 126. And Stuart, we are thrilled that you're back to talk to us again today. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation, guys. Great to be back with you. And so tell us, how actually have units in Melbourne underperformed? Uh, just in terms of capital growth, that's, that's yeah. where the underperformance has been. But in um, what sort of relative terms to houses? How poorly have they done? Well, Mm. maybe you'd be lucky to get 2% per annum in terms of growth over the last um, seven, eight, nine, ten years, uh, depending on that that sort of period of time. So, you know, people that bought something for, I don't know, 500,000 seven years ago, it might be worth 550 today. Um, So in real terms, if you, you know, take into account inflation, there's probably no real growth. Uh, And certainly if we look back, you know, if we had a crystal ball seven years ago and I said to you, you can buy this and it'll be worth 50 grand more in seven <laughs> years' time, you'd go, no, thanks, Stuart. Mm. I'll, I'll do something else with my money. But, you know, the other thing too is, um, uh, uh, and um, uh, Buffett talks about it a lot, you know, p- patience and doing nothing and just sitting with an investment um, is sometimes the hardest thing to do. Uh, but people that, uh, that do it and do it well uh, or are good at, you know, ha- having that patience, uh, that's where the returns go. So we know that, you know, property moves in spurts. Uh, same with houses, uh, you know, they, they don't, it's not a straight line uh, sort of return. So there's going to be periods of time uh, that you don't get a lot of growth in both asset classes, sub-asset classes. Uh, you just hope that, you know, when you first invest, you invest at the beginning of a growth period so you don't have to mm-hmm. wait, you know, eight to 10 years to see any growth. But unfortunately, no one really knows. 
And I think probably they fall, you know, I'd have clients in all of those categories. I would say mostly it's because of budget. And so therefore making a comparison against an apartment versus house is probably a little unfair because if a house was unaffordable when we made the investment, well, then maybe the the fairer comparison is uh, apartment versus share market, for example, mm. is two alternatives. So although maybe you wouldn't gear to the same level in the share market that you would in property. So again, it's it's a bit theoretical, the comparison, but really what I wanted to arrive at is we've got this asset, we made this decision. The decision was based on long-term fundamentals and long-term returns. Uh, has the market permanently changed uh, or, um, or will these investments work and we just need to hold on to them? Uh, and I guess, you know, it's a really difficult thing to do because if you've held an investment for eight years, it is absolutely rational and reasonable to expect to some decent returns over that time. Yeah. So it's then very difficult to say, no, just hang on, uh, keep the faith. Uh, and, you know, th- when we say, has the market permanently changed? I'm always cautious to believe that. I mean, you read the paper and you know, that's all they write about is everything has changed and tomorrow is going to be different. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that things rarely change, you know, and if they do, that tend to take many, many decades to change. These overnight changes uh, tend to be quite rare. So, you know, we've got to be conscious of, of that as well. At the end of the day, we've got a, a growing population, a, a finite amount of space. Um, houses are becoming more and more expensive, so less attainable. Uh, and we all need to live somewhere and most people want to live where there's it's close to the CBD and there's good amenity and we can talk about work from home and how that impacts. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of other considerations other than where am I working uh, that guide us where we want to live. So, you know, the old supply demand economics uh, are still present, I think, in, in the property market, particularly blue chip locations. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. A couple of things. One, uh, one of your podcast episodes recently was all about basically change. I can't remember what what the episode was called. You'll be able to mention it and we can even put the link in the show notes. And it was the right, you know, we keep talking about these unprecedented things that happen. You know, the GFC was unprecedented. September 11 was unprecedented. You know, obviously a, a pandemic is unprecedented, but what isn't unprecedented is the way we react to this. And um the other thing that I read recently was a like an article written by or commentary written by Ross Gittens about why economists get it wrong, and it's when they're focusing only on the metrics and not and modelling a mathematical side of things rather than actually human behaviour. And I think that's that's really if we focus on human behaviour is fundamentally what's going to give us some clues as to what will happen in the future. Um, and so I guess that's what you're what you're touching on this. You're right. Yeah, and I've always thought property is part art, part science. Mm. We can sit here and and that's why I don't like some of the analysis that people do that's very data-driven Yeah, because you can, you can end up in the wrong place. You know, the data, the data can tell you the wrong story. Um, you, what you need to do is have both and an equal weight of both. I think you need to get a good sense of the market, the types of property, the types of people that are that are occupying or or purchasing those properties, um, and their trends and desires and those sorts of things. And then you can look at the data, but the data is mostly macroeconomic, right? It's a it's mm. at a, a state level, and and even if you then go drill down into sort of suburb data. You've then got to question how reliable, how big is the data set, how reliable is it? So uh, data has challenges. I guess if we're making some macroeconomic 
common, uh, you know, we're commentating around macroeconomic changes. It's it's useful, but I don't know if that's that useful when applying it to property decisions. Because if I'm going to go and buy a, a an apartment in Bondi or an apartment in um, Hawthorne, uh, you know. What, what, what's happening at a macroeconomic level in the Australian economy and Australian property market doesn't necessarily inform me what's happening in Bondi or what's happening in, in Hawthorne in Melbourne, for example. It's nice and complicated, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, Stuart, though, you know, also your report is about investment grade and let's talk about that for a minute because you can have investment grade locations, you can have investment grade property within those locations. What do you define investment grade as? So I think this is a really important distinction because there's a lot of apartments out there and most of them aren't investment grade and they're rubbish and never going to work as investments. Um, and so my, my report and analysis, it, it doesn't doesn't address them, of course. Uh, I'm just really talking about investment grade. So investment grade would have a high land value component and obviously people say, well, it's an apartment, doesn't really have any land, but it's got an attributable land component. And typically older style units, you know, there might be six to 10 in the block and they would tend to sit on a, a very valuable piece of land. Quite often if they were constructed in the 1960s or earlier, they would have constructed the block almost in the middle of the, the, the block of land, you know, so there'd be quite a bit of land <laughs> around it. Not necessarily, not what they would do today where they build completely to the perimeter. Uh, and uh, so they're older style, at, if they have some architectural significance like Art Deco, uh, you mentioned Veronica, great um, uh, type of property because it's scarce, no one's building sort of Art Deco anymore. Uh, and they have a history, a very long history of performance. So, you know, if, if it's Art Deco built in the, in the 30s, well, we've nearly got 100 years of history in terms of price growth and change over that time. And that, and that goes to, you know, supporting evidence you know if you're going to form a view that everything's changed and apartments don't work what you're essentially doing is ignoring the last hundred years of evidence that uh, suggests they actually do work uh, which isn't which might be okay it's okay things can change as i said but you want to you know you want to be cautious i think about adopting that view mm. And this is something we've interviewed, you know, Eliza Rowan a number of times and also other data data uh, economists and data specialists. And you know, one of my frustrations is it's really difficult to separate out the data in apartments to be discerning in terms of what you measure because anything strata is lumped in the same bucket. So particularly when you talk about macro data, it it's impossible to make informed decisions by looking at that. You've got to take a scalpel to it and understand what you're actually looking for. So it's sort of interesting that you've carved it up this way. How did you identify or isolate the properties to actually um, to look at? Uh, not with any science, and I, I don't um, uh, for a minute think that I did it accurately. <laughs> I, mean, I, I focused on suburbs, but this is where, um, uh, and, and of course not every apartment in Hawthorne, for example, is a good quality apartment, particularly mm -hmm. if it's being constructed over the last 10 years. Um, uh, but I guess the, uh, the thing is that's where the art versus science comes in to mm -hmm. it. You know, I know how apartments have performed in Hawthorne because I look at it every single day, you know, in terms of client scenarios, clients coming to me that bought an apartment 10 years ago and how has it changed and what did they pay and what is it worth today, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing something every day, you build a sort of anecdotal picture in your mind about what is happening in the marketplace. 
Now, then you hopefully uh, go to the data to confirm that, and it and it does confirm that. I guess that there's no evidence, there's a complete absence of evidence that, in fact, uh, investment-grade apartments have outperformed non-investment-grade apartments. So I can't find any data to demonstrate that, and that's exactly what I believe, exactly what I've observed over the last 10 years. They haven't. They're both done really poorly, and that doesn't make sense because you've got one that's predominantly building value, that's brand new, that has no history, that has no scarcity. And then you compare that to the other asset, an investment grade apartment that has a long history of growth, that has a strong land value component um, and is a scarce asset. And they've both performed the, the same. That is no growth. Uh, that just doesn't make sense. I mean, that doesn't stand to logic, uh, I think, for, for most people. So something's got to be wrong. What, what's going wrong? Why isn't it working? There has been some data around that's shown, in particular, the actual proportion of brand new properties or brand new apartments in Melbourne that have on-sold at a loss. Mm. Um, in, in particularly, I think um, Biz Oxford Economics did a report sort of between 2011 and 2016. There's been other data that's come out since then that showed a bit, like almost two-thirds mm. of resales of brand new in that period sell at a loss. So that's definitely mm. less than your 2% per annum growth. Mm. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, you, you sort of got to pull out different types of reports and different types of research to to try to get to the bottom of that. But, and I would, I would hazard that that sort of underperformance is, is really been a massive anchor on, you know, a dragging the chain effectively of, um, you know, performance of these investment grade properties. Yeah, that's right. And, and and the other thing to take into account is human behaviour, right? Mm. Most people, that they bought something off the plan. It's a brand new apartment. Uh, you know, they paid 450 for it. It might be worth 400 today. And they say to themselves, oh, I'm not going to sell it now. I'm not going to sell it at a loss. Oh, wait. And, and they think that, you know, they haven't lost money because they haven't sold. Yeah. Uh, so there's that reluctance. So, you know, understanding, so the data will tell us, you know, the brave people that realised it was a bad asset and have sold yeah. at a loss. Um, mm. But really what it doesn't show is actually that whole segment has fallen in value. We're seeing a little bit of it, but not a lot. Um, we're still seeing people that um, plan to upgrade to a, a blue chip suburb or upgrade within the same blue chip suburb uh, that, that had those plans before COVID uh, and are still implementing upon those plans in the main. Uh, every I, I could probably count on a hand, really, the amount of conversations I've had where people are contemplating, well, do we stay in the city or do we go down by the coast or uh, somewhere rural or, or so forth? There have been some of those conversations, but they're not material. There's not a big difference. And I'll look, I wonder if it's, you know, if you look at houses in really great suburbs in Sydney compared to Melbourne, there's, it's a big difference, right? You know, it's some, uh, you know, a high-end purchase will be 20 to 50 million in Sydney in a great suburb. In, in Melbourne, it's um, rare for it to go above 10 million. So I think, I think from a house perspective in Melbourne, uh, dare I even say it, houses are still relatively affordable <laughs> relative to Sydney. Uh, and maybe that's why we're not seeing the same change. Whereas uh, whereas in Sydney, if you've got a, a, a finite budget, you know, you've got to move further away from the CBD. You might be an hour or so, maybe more away from the CBD. That's not the case in Melbourne. You can still, still relatively affordable within half an hour's sort of commute or drive. Uh, from the CBD. So we're not really seeing a massive change in that regard. Um, and look, I, I wonder, you know, we, we can all, 
Uh, I was speaking to a friend uh, yesterday who's a CFO at a, a large uh, industry super fund, and he's saying most people don't want to come back into the office. Like they're using <laughs> excuses, oh, I don't want to take public transport and et cetera, et cetera. They're quite happy uh, being at home, uh, which is great. Uh, I think they're mostly happy at being at home because, you know, we went through a pretty ordinary lockdown in Melbourne that persisted for a long period of time. And so any kind of freedom feels like good freedom at the moment. It's still almost kind of new to go to a restaurant and, you know, there's been, there's a, a normal amount of people in there. Uh, but I, I really question whether people will continue to want to work from home and or whether there be side effects like culturally. How do you build a culture within a business that's a little bit more difficult if your, your workforce is very fragmented and there's not a lot of face-to-face contact? And, and then the you know there's a lot of economic studies that demonstrate that people come to work mostly for human contacts and relationships rather than economic benefits. Uh, and uh, and so I think again Melbourne's been through kind of a unique situation where sure we've been locked in our homes now we're allowed out so it's still a little bit unique um, but will will um, a large proportion of people be quite comfortable sitting in their spare room uh, working away. Uh, 365 days a year with very little human to human contact. I just don't know. I'm just not sure that that's really um, the longer term trend. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly we've had that discussion with a number of the people that we've had on the podcast. And and it does seem to be the consensus that you know, that there will be a, a movement or a, in terms of flexibility, so there may be less mm. going into the office, but in terms of taking people out of the office permanently, you know, it's a bit pie in the sky and I think that's a good example of the pendulum going from one extreme to the other at the beginning mm. of, you know, COVID. And so I think some people have taken advantage of that in terms of where they've located. It does uh, allow for that flexibility, but it, it does create limitations in other areas for their careers and certainly culturally and visibility and learning and all those sorts of things. So what we've seen in Sydney certainly has been um, that there's been that initial knee-jerk reaction, oh my God, you know, apartments on the nose, nobody wants to be in apartments anymore, Um, houses going crazy. Certainly since coming back after Christmas, already we've seen an interest in apartments um, resuming, but a bit more, um, a bit more, what's the word, a bit more discerning. So the one bedders, really, there's not very a lot of reason to look at a one bedroom anymore. You know, because oh, if I'm going to work from home I, I, and I've only got a one bedroom, that's it. You know, and and I think that there's a lot of people looking at them as an affordable option and now seeing the problem with one bedders. And so that's sort of interesting. And I'm not sure what that'll mean long term for anybody holding a one bedroom, but certainly the larger one bedders and you know with the study and or two bedders are starting to actually get buyers at them again. Agents have been telling me they've had 30 people through an open, whereas at the end of last year they might have had 10, if that. So it's interesting just to see that coming back. So I think, you know, I think um, the whole COVID reaction, uh, there'll be some permanent change, but potentially we'll go back largely to the way things were, you know. That's sort of my guess at the minute. I think so. I think there's always been trends in property. You know, if I think back uh, to 2002 when I started ProSolution, um, investing in positive cash flow was a trend, you know, so yeah. regional <laughs> area buying a property with a yield of 8%. Uh, and because the yield was so high, you know, the, the um, property was going to give you $50 a week in terms of net cash flow. 
uh, and all you had to do <laughs> is go and acquire 20 of those properties or more and all of a sudden, bang, you're, you know, you're close to retirement. Uh, but that was a phase. You know, it just didn't work. It didn't have any fundamentals. So I think that there's always going to be trends in property, uh, what's popular at a particular point in time, uh, whether the and, uh, apartments in Melbourne are relatively unpopular <laughs> compared to houses, uh, working from home or you know, going to a, a rural sort of sea change, tree change location might be a bit trendy at the moment. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we, um, you know, cities, uh, people congregate in cities all over the world. And that hasn't been, that that's not just a trend. That's been something that's happened for hundreds of years. <laughs> it's and so funny. I'm yeah, sorry, the, I'm just, <laughs> because you're so right. Sorry to interrupt you there. I mean, yeah, absolutely, right. it's human nature is going to do what human nature does. And there's all these little, oh, my God, I've got to go and chase this latest gravy train. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's not, you know, we haven't been congregating in cities because the absence of Zoom, for example. <laughs> Zoom is no longer, you know, just going to change everything. You know, we've built uh, cities and they've accumulated and amassed over hundreds and hundreds for very good reasons, um, separate to being able to work from home. So I think it's important to to separate what's a trend because there's always going to be trends, uh, not only in property, I think in all asset classes. Mm. Technology is a great trend or healthcare in the US is a good trend at the moment yeah. as well. Um, uh, you know, separate from trend versus fundamentals. In the long run, fundamentals is what's going to drive returns. In the short run, trends drive returns. Uh, but they don't persist. Uh, very few trends persist, which is is probably you know something for people to really think about. Yeah, I mean, I guess, um, I mean, I, I, it's kind of, I sit on the fence of this a little bit, just watching how dramatic the human behaviour has been changed. You know, in the last six to twelve months, you know, the number of buyers that would have moved to the central coast, we spoke about it lots of times over the last six or seven years, and even though it was much cheaper, they couldn't get their head around leaving their friends and family and having to do a commute five days a week. But then in the last, say, eight months, complete, you know, flip 180 where buyers are saying, oh, I'm willing to do that, willing to make that compromise because I can get a house that I, and I, the commute can work. And the same thing we've had clients buy down the South Coast, and Bowral, Blue Mountains. Um, and and I, I do think that one thing has been stopping and making that shift is literally the commute. And if you change that sort of dynamic um, then when you pe new people start moving to these areas, then the community in those areas start changing and then there's more people like them and then there's new friends and networks and your friends move there and then they go there. Uh, do you think that that's going to happen? Uh, Melbourne is definitely a city city, you know, like what's mm. driving Melbourne is, you know, the bars, the cafes, the restaurants, that inner city mm. culture, whereas Sydney it is more around the sort of lifestyle and the beaches and things like that. So maybe it's a, a city change. Mm. Um, but I don't know, I guess wonder, especially when people get to that sort of family formation phase, you know, the, the restaurants and the inner city doesn't matter as much. Now, a case it's more about the local community, uh, schooling, parks, nature, etc. So maybe, and that's where generally a lot of the higher income buyers are going to be. So do you think that that's going to play out in Melbourne and that's going to impact the people who potentially would have bought apartments will now shift to Mornington Peninsula or Geelong or Bendigo or Dalesford or Kyneton or, mm. you know, there's so many beautiful pockets just outside Melbourne where a lot of those buyers, if they can't afford Brighton or, you know, Camberwell, they're going to go, well, I don't want an apartment in those prime suburbs. I will go to a regional area. Mm. Yeah, look, I think I think it will occur. 
Uh, and I think there's always going to be people that sort of fit that fit that mould. But not every sort of occupational industry lends itself well to working mm. from home permanently. Um, I certainly think a lot of people will, will adopt a more hybrid model. And certainly in our business, that's what's been happening. You know, three days in the office, two days at home, for example, gives yeah. you a really good balance um, between those two things. Um, but look, I've got, we've got a, my wife and I've got a house in Fairhaven, which is just past Anglesey along the coast. It's yeah. about an hour and a half drive from, from Melbourne. Um, during summer, we, we used to spend quite a bit of time down there. We might be down there for a full month and, and we'd go mad. Like, it's just not the same. We couldn't <laughs> live there permanently. It's, there's nothing going on down there. You know, there's some decent restaurants, but they're not, they're limited. There might be one or two uh, decent ones. It just doesn't offer the same vibe, the same um, uh, entertainment opportunities, you know, just the same, mm-hmm. uh, you know, standard of living. Now, we couldn't do it. Uh, if you had young kids, uh, schooling would be a challenge, challenge down there. Schooling really rural is a bit of Russian roulette. I mean, you can find some really good schools, public schools, but you know, it, it can be difficult. I just don't, I think there's a lot of, I think it's a trend. Um, I think people like to talk about it, but whether it's something that really they can live with, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd invite people to, well, what I tend to try and ask clients to do is go and rent in that area mm. and just try it out before you go and commit to buying and paying stamp duty and entry and exit costs and yep. all those sorts of things. Go and, go and rent there. It might, and it will suit some people. Some people will love it. It will suit them much better and it's the best thing for them to do. Um, but I don't think it will suit as many people as, as we might think from a practical perspective. I think there might be some challenges with it, but look, I, I, could, I could be wrong. Uh, but the, but by taking that view, adopting well, this is a permanent trend mm. that's going to significantly change demand levels for inner city uh, property. I think that's that's a pretty brave brave view. It's sort of interesting the the renting thing. I've been advising people to do that for years, ever since I you know were filming location, 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 and relocation, relocation. It's like <laughs> it's it became very obvious to me that people were chasing um, the impossible dream in many cases, and they're hoping life is going to be different for them if they sort of ditch the city and the demands of their job, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, life would be difficult, but often they still take themselves. You know, you can't escape from yourself, and if you're trying to, to do a sea or tree change because basically you're dissatisfied with your life. Often mm. you take that sense of dissatisfaction with you mm. and and then a year later you think, mm. and so if you've bought into that area or you've managed to buy in a part of the area that, that actually isn't the, the place you ultimately you want to be in because now you know better, you would buy differently, then you're stuck. And the problem is, of course, at the moment, is it that these rentals, it's just not available. <laughs> mm. <laughs> there is a real shortage of rental stock outside mm. of the capital cities and, um, and so that does make things for challenge. But the, I think the problem is, that the, when you're chasing trends, you're chasing short-term solutions and property cannot be a short-term play. It just can't. And so, therefore, it goes back to, your, you know, the fundamentals stay the same, the trends will come and go, that people are feeling like this is going to be a, a long-term trend. And, you look, yes, maybe it is. This is the first uptick and, and there will be generally better performance in re- regional or more stable or consistent re- performance in regional areas and has been in the past. But... It's you still can't base your knee jerk decision on on 
that belief because that's quite a that's quite a daring belief to think mm. that it's you're going to miss out if you don't do something now and I think that's one of the challenges that people have they feel like they're on the cusp of oh my god it's going to get out of my grasp and if I don't do it now I'm going to miss out forever and FOMO is just FOMO is taken off everywhere and this is I guess interesting because it's it's not at the expense of the inner city um but it may be at the expense of apartments to a degree, you know. So I guess it's, anyway, back to our topic of apartments. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the report that, that you have to kind of wrestle with if you're sort of comparing apartments to, to property is that if property values have risen and if we're going to assume in the main that those price increases haven't occurred because of improvements to the dwelling. Of course, there's been renovation and new construction and mm. so forth. But if you're saying the main driver of those value increases is the underlying land value, then how can apartments not have changed in value, particularly older style investment grade apartments that have more than 50% of land value component? We can't say that land has changed on this block because there's a house but the block next door that has six apartments on it, it hasn't changed in value. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. But that comes back to this thing that, you know, and everyone says, oh, land is what goes up, you know, the, the actual building doesn't. But the reality is that what is on the land is what makes the difference. You know, it's the optimal use thing. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't have what's in demand on that land, then the land value growth is going to be hamstrung by what, you know, the dwelling, right? Yep. Um, so I guess that's what that comes to. And so some of these red brick three-storey walk-ups, for instance, you know, maybe they'd be better off been knocking down putting one house. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I am actually joking about that. Um, but that's the problem with with focusing purely on land value and, and saying, oh, well, it should have gone up because of where it's located. Uh, yes, uh, yes and no. I think yes in the short term, um, but in the longer term, I, I think mm-hmm. fundamentally it's got to change. Uh, I think that's hand in hand. Then you look at what what is the other trends that have occurred over that period of time that my report looks like looks at, and just the the supply of new development, new stock, uh, particularly aimed at non residents. Uh, that occurred over that period of time. So really to an uneducated buyer, maybe even a first-home buyer or even an investor, but an uneducated one, you know, if they're comparing an older-style 1960s two-bedroom apartment to a brand-new apartment with stone bench tops and um, European appliances, et cetera, et cetera, with some depreciation and you don't pay stamp duty, et cetera, you know, when you compare those two uh, and one has a marketing, a significant marketing budget and one mm. doesn't, of course, we're going to look at the shiny object and that's where our money is going to go. Uh, so that's been the trend and that's why that that uh, those older style apartments sitting on that are unpopular because, you know, too hard to sell something that looks old or, or a little bit worn compared to something that is completely brand new. But then if we assume or understand that, okay, well, that new stock, just that uh, particularly that price point and at that finish quality, the poor quality, just won't persist because... Now they've tightened rules for, you know, uh, foreign buyers and the amount of foreign ownership in any one particular development. If we understand what has occurred, then we say, well, that new shiny stock's no longer going to, or at least the, the, there's going to be lower volumes of it. Mm. Anything that's been built over the last 10 years will wear and tear considerably. You know, a developer is only worried about one sale. That's the first sale. They don't yeah. care about resale. So it's they've either got a body corporate's got to spend a lot of money on upkeep 
or which is more likely going to happen, the property will wear and tear and look terrible. And I think then um, those older style that are typically double brick, built really well, higher ceilings, you know, um, more room will start to have a bit of a renaissance. And I think that those sorts of properties will then start to sort of come in their own and people will start to discern the difference between living in something that's 10 years old that now that very paper thin walls, low ceilings just doesn't, it's lost its shiny and new mm. appeal. Uh, and all of a sudden, I think as everything goes in cycles, uh, those older style apartments will become trendy again. And that's when we'll get to enjoy the intrinsic value of the land component that's appreciated over that period of time. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. I do agree. It's going to be at some point where the, that becomes the option for people because what's going to push up the price of those apartments isn't investors buying them, isn't, you know, singles. It's once you start to get that affluent sort of high income, you know, couples and families um, cannot afford mm. There's no other better alternative and they, you know, their best alternative is buying an apartment, an older apartment in a premium suburb. But I think the thing that's been holding it back from just my observations with Melbourne, comparing it to say Sydney, is there's not many options for that that couple or family in Sydney. You know, the houses are just out of reach um, and they don't want to go to those middle and outer ring suburbs because they lose all the lifestyle benefits. But in Melbourne, you know, you can still get a house in the inner west, for example, you know, that's still affordable. You know, there's still certain pockets that aren't too far away from the city that are, are still a good lifestyle benefit uh, where people, young couples in Melbourne will say, well, I'd prefer to buy that than buy the apartment. The other problem I think in Melbourne is that even in these middle and inner ring suburbs, there is going to be this proliferation of new townhouses. Um, you know, you can already see it in certain suburbs. And so, while they, you know, the apartment would be the obvious choice, I think that even if the houses get too expensive, you're still going to have to battle with this sort of, you know, you know, lots of new townhouses sort of coming to market as well. So I don't know. I think it's it's when those those couples and high income families say, well, I can't afford a house anywhere in the around the city. I can't afford a townhouse, and so now the best option for me for me is buying a two bed apartment. Like that's when you'll start to see, you know, serious price growth. But I just wonder how long it's going to be till buyers are forced to make that decision. So one of the um, trends I looked at in the report, I compared the capital growth rates of apartments. Of course, this is just median uh, prices because there's no um, better data than that. Uh, since 1980 for Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. And it showed particularly in Melbourne and Sydney that capital growth over that period of time has been between seven and seven and a half percent, so over that sort of forty-year period, but it showed um, very distinct periods of time of seven to ten years of very strong growth, twelve or thirteen percent, uh, but also period equal periods of time of seven to ten years of very little growth, um, and that's not different to houses. I did the same chart the year before mm-hmm. for for houses, um, so we have to understand. I think. Uh, that the chances of straight line growth 
in property, irrespective of the asset that we're buying, is unlikely. Uh, what's more likely is that growth will come in spurts. And that's not, that's not a unique thing. It's not unique that we've not seen any growth in apartments for the last seven to eight years. It's in mm. fact just a repeating a, a, a long-term trend. And the townhouse thing, Chris, I, I think, you know, if you're looking the, and I'm talking about sort of prime suburbs like South Yarra, um, Paran, uh, Hawthorne, Elwood in Melbourne, they don't really tend to lend themselves to, to townhouse developments. Townhouse developments are, more, are happening more in secondary locations because the land values are just too expensive in those locations. So it really is a case of for someone uh, contemplating a, a property decision, particularly if it's someone that's a, a first or second home buyer that doesn't yet have a family that's got, say, six to 800000 to spend, their decision is to really either go to a secondary suburb you know, in the outer area or buy an apartment. And uh, if they're um, if they know it's not their long term home, if it's like I'll buy this property, I'll live in it, and then at some point I'm going to get married and start a family, then one of the things they really need to think about is: do we keep it as an investment, and how's it going to work, and what's the uh, how is that asset going to perform over time? So, what I would be saying to those sort of clients is: well, you're actually better off to take an investment lens to that decision, buy a buy a property that would otherwise make a good investment. Um, and then if you and then if you're able to buy something that's also uh, going to have enough amenity to, for you to be able to live in it for that period of time, then you'll be well served. And and in the end, it's going to be a long term investment for you. And I think they're going to be better off doing that than going so 20, 25 k's out, uh, getting a, a house on a on a five hundred square meter block of land uh, that might suit them from a uh, an immediate lifestyle perspective, but it's we all know it's not going to make that it's not going to have the same returns, or at least if we look at the last uh, forty years in terms of returns, it's unlikely it's going to give them the same sort of capital growth rates. Yeah, I guess that's if if that you're talking the target market for this property is that sort of starter couple. Um, ultimately, their still careers are still developing, their incomes are still going to be restricted. Their actual cash they've got is always restricted. It's just human nature in your 20s and you haven't got much cash and your incomes are still growing. So if that property always only suits that target market um, and it doesn't hit that 30s, 40s sort of couples and families, how is that asset going to become the growth of what that next, where you've got higher incomes and, you know, reinvested wealth? You sell one property and you buy another property. And I think you want to hit a property that hits that, other target market, you know, the high incomes and families because they're the ones with the cash. And I just wonder with apartments, besides the downsizer market, you know, if the, the downsizer market typically is also a good, if you're going to buy an apartment, it should sort of uh, appeal to. The problem with the downsizer market is mm. that they have been freaked out with COVID um, and, you know, have, have, wished, have been so glad they've been in a house, a lot of them, rather than living in an apartment through this year. And so... Uh, and also the way the, ten, the pension works with the CGT, you know, it's better just to keep the house. They've also seen it's, that's their best asset. The kids want to keep them in the house as well for those reasons. Um, you know, and living in a single level is much more common in Melbourne rather than it's not that hilly really. Um, and so a lot of people can stay in their homes. And so I don't think the, the, apart, the downs, apart, downsizers are going to push up apartment prices, but I also wonder you know, uh, young couples and families aren't going to push up apartment prices. And I also wonder whether investors are going to go back to buying apartments. The reality is, 
you know, investors are very fickle. You know, they don't buy counter-cyclical. So they wouldn't just look at apartments in Melbourne and go, well, they haven't grown for the last seven years, so they're a great investment. Investors go where the growth has been. It's just the human nature. And and there's been a lot of headlines around apartments, not only through COVID, but building issues, et cetera. Um, And so investors aren't going to come back to apartments in a hurry because they're going to be like, well, until I see growth. So it's a chicken and egg problem. So I just wonder what's going to push up apartment prices from a demand point of view. And then I guess on the other side of the coin, we don't know about future supply yet. We just don't know what's going to get built in the next 20 years. And I I look at, I guess, a lot of developments and what's getting built and the quality has to improve because developers Mm. have to up their game. The reality is you have to offer a better product because it won't sell. And so it's my belief, I guess, the developments that we've built in the last 20 years are going to be, you know, chalk and cheese to what we build in the next 20 years. And I just don't think the Manhattan effect has really happened in Melbourne because the quality has been so poor. Mm. But if you think about the next 20 years, you look at the, you know, the, the, the prices that some people are paying for apartments in, say, Sydney and Melbourne, the, the top end, um, that could easily filter to middle market. So you could see three-bed, you know, homes that are great quality start to be built all across all of Melbourne. And so I just wonder, you know, what's going to drive prices? Like what's going to push it up? Like who is going to do it? I, you know, Chris, I love your, um, you know, your, what's the word, <laughs> positivity here because idealism is the word I'm looking for because you say that, you know, people aren't going to buy poorly built apartments but people have in droves and governments are incentivizing people to buy poorly built apartments in droves. And so I can't see this sudden light bulb going on in the general public, the general buying public that's going to say, oh, I'm no longer going to buy crappily built, you know, new apartments. I'm going to focus on not getting on my government grants and not getting my ability to uh, depreciate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm going to focus on buying quality asset. I actually don't, I think we are all too short term in our thinking and, um, you know, and people don't realise the dangers, which is one of the reasons why developers do build this crap because they haven't, the demands have not been placed on them by consumers. Now, I love the idea of raising the bar and getting consumers groundswell movement. I'm not buying that shit anymore. But unfortunately, most consumers aren't smart enough when it comes to buying property, which is why we have this podcast and why we have a Dumbo segment and why it could we could have an entire Dumbo podcast because the stories I hear time and time again of being people buying this shit and not selling it when you know when they realise it's shit. You know what I mean? It's it, this this isn't going to go away. There's no there's no greater force that is actually going to stop people long term from buying crap. And I think to speak to the where is the growth going to come from? Um, so if I think back 10 years ago, in you could have bought probably a house and get close to, if you had a budget of, say, about a million bucks, you'd probably find something 10 years ago. Uh, and at the same time, an apartment would cost you 600 grand. So, you know, for an extra 400,000, you can go and buy yourself a house. Mm. Uh, now in Hawthorne for a decent home, you know, you're going to have to pay 1.4, but you can still buy an apartment for maybe somewhere between six and 700,000, a decent, a relatively decent apartment. Um, what's going to drive the growth is demand to live in Hawthorne because it's a great place to live. And if I am had the decision as a young couple uh, to live in Hawthorne or go further out, we know I know there's a, a guy that works in our business, 
did exactly that mistake um, was Renzi and Hawthorne bought further out and they're going to come back into Hawthorne because they're, they're young and they shouldn't be in the suburbs um, <laughs> getting very bored. Um, so that's what's going to drive the growth is the, is the differential between houses and apartments and the fact that people won't want to compromise. They want to live in that location. They want the amenity uh, and they will be in a position to be able to pay for that. Apartments, older style apartments, are, I would say, affordable, relatively affordable today. They're a good proposition. Um, but still, and then if you understand I mean, that's the two bed, fundamentals. Yeah. That, that's a two-bed apartment. Yeah. yeah. So yep. when they get yep. to family formation stage um, and they, you know, want to have kids, do they want yep. to live in Hawthorne or do they want a three-bed? And so what happens is that they get to the higher incomes and they've, and then they those higher incomes basically have to leave Hawthorne for that lower end because for them, you hit, what, until those apartments start to satisfy the family market, which may happen, but it's just, you know, it's a big compromise to give up on that sort of three-bed uh, bit of land for kids to say, I'm going to live in an apartment. So, And that's that's when that apartment will go up because until it, that demand hits that, you're still going to hit that affordability market, which is those couples that are still growing their careers, et cetera. I'd argue you know, yes, there's childless families and things like that, but... You know, it's not that strongest demand. I'd argue apartments have never um, lent themselves to a family scenario, at least not with um, children that, that are kind of at walking age, toddlers and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd argue that most people living in apartments are single um, young couples with maybe a baby or older people that are single living by themselves. And so uh, I think that's always been the target market. And if we look at the growth between... 1980 and 2020 uh, in Melbourne at 7.6 percent over that period of time. Well, we have to ask ourselves what's driven the demand and growth for that asset class. It's not, to my mind, it's not families. It's never going to be families. Mm. No. You know, there's always going to be a pool of potential purchases. And then if you have a look at the population growth in Melbourne uh, compared to other capital cities, and in, in terms of projected population growth. Uh, you know that 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 growing swell of demand of people that um, either a single or young couple that want to live, or, or an older single person that want to live in Hawthorne, I, I can't see that demand reducing. Uh, I would imagine that demand's going to be the same or greater than uh, what it's been for the last uh, forty years. Um, mm. Otherwise, wh- why wh- why would apartments exist over forty years if if no one really wanted to to live in them? Yeah, I don't think it's a family. I don't think it's, to my mind, it's not. I'm not relying on uh, demand from a family set, or for or demand from people that think they're going to buy this property and live it for the for the next forty years. I'm not sure apartments have, have ever sort of played that role, um, but I think they they still. You know, there's still uh, enough younger couples out there that are in a position to pay more than six to seven hundred thousand dollars mm. for that asset. That, I think that Chris... intrinsic value might be closer to eight or nine hundred thousand today. Uh, and because markets move in spurts, you know that spurt will come along, and those prices will appreciate. Well, I'm not saying will; I, I expect them to. <laughs> I think. I think, Chris. You're forgetting that um, not everyone has a nearly one-year-old baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank God. I, I, I'm reflecting on our clients, right? I'm reflecting on, you know, the, the, the difference of the way that they they look at the world, I but guess. Who's your demographic um, though, Chris? Because you market yourself, you know, particularly at sort of your own age group, you know what I mean? Like so there is more people out there than just that demographic buying property. 
Yeah, well, that's true. But also, you know, that's where the, you know, ultimately the what the means of that buyer is what drives the prices. Hence why you'll see that house areas, housing areas and things that do suit families in more established areas are worth a lot more. Um, and so, you know, yes, apartments could have a good run because a lot of high-income couples could go for them. Um, but I also question whether they will see that, you know, especially if they're thinking for, once they, for example, their incomes do rise, they, they build a bit more savings, they're going to sell that apartment because they're going to want more space. And then they're going back selling it to people who are still starting out and still, so you, you've got to wait for that higher incomes couples to get the, the borrowing capacity to build the equity the, to push the, the prices same, up. The same process happens. Okay, so I started selling property in Balmain, you know, 20-odd years ago now, and it, it's the same principle. Forget the apartments in Balmain, just look at houses. You know, people buy a worker's cottage first, their two-bedroom. And, yes, they're on the ground level, so it's not as inconvenient as an apartment trying to get up a lift or upstairs or whatever with prams and stuff, but fundamentally two-bedroom cottage, worker's cottage, there's a there's a, there's a limit to how many people can live in it comfortably. And what typically would happen, first baby would come along, that's fine, then pregnant with second yeah. one or second one's born and then bang, they're out of there. And it's a it's a cyclical thing, And it but it's the entry-level house in Balmain. And it, what it is, it fuels the flame under that market you know, that people aspire to live there, it comes back to the Hawthorne idea. People will want to buy, want to live mm. in Hawthorne. They aspire to live there. That's what they can afford. Then they outgrow that house. They're forced to sell it um, generally, usually, to in order to upgrade. That then creates that availability for the next generation yeah. of person who is what they were when they bought it and so on. And I think the same thing can happen with apartments in these, these areas. But you've also got the added um, desirability amongst people who never desire to have children or aren't coupled up or are, you know, are, are even a single parent with one child, you know. So there's there are other segments of the market that would um, that would see apartment as, a good apartment as a suitable uh, alternative because they want to be in the area more importantly than they want to live in a house. And I think that's sort of yeah, what you're saying, isn't it, Stuart? True. So the single there, unfortunately, there's borrowing capacity restraints and probably equity restraints. The divorcee is exactly the same. Um, and, you know, and so that, yes, they other people could want it, but is that the, the demand that you want to own but your But there's asset? scarcity. There's scarcity in these locations because there's the inner city locations, you know, and I think that's, you know, so yes, you say that, that masses can't get the access to the funds, but the enough people can that want to be there and that sort of, you know, then the lack of supply keeps the, keeps the lid on that. Mm. I don't know. Stuart, is that, does that line up with what your research has indicated? Yeah, bang on. I think I think it's just the, the imbalance of supply and demand. I get what Chris is saying. In the main, you know, that if you look at a general population, you know, that that, that then you'd struggle to sort of draw, well, who's buying this? Why would you, we want to do that? But that's not really what we're looking at. We're looking, we're considering firstly investment grade apartments. So we're already only considering probably 5% of apartments that are out there. And we're not considering the wider Australian population. Yep. We're considering people that, for example, is a young professional single person earning $200,000 a year that wants to live in Hawthorne or a professional yep. couple that have a combined family income of $200,000 and they want to live in Hawthorne and they maybe made a decision not to have kids or not to have kids yet. Mm. But they've certainly got affordability. So that's the, that's the and that's where I want to own an asset. I want to own an asset in a location where there's, an, there's more and more people that earn more and more money 
that, that are able and willing to may pay more to get into that area. Yeah. And that's where when we look at macroeconomic trends, that's where I think it fails us because we look at average weekly time earnings or average growth in wages and all those sorts of things. That's great. But, you know, the hedge fund manager that came along to buy the apartment as his first home, he's going to be lost in that data. And yep. but that's the that's the person I want to buy my property or or be willing to buy my property. The hedge fund manager that works eighty hours a week ain't going to want to sit uh, an hour on the train to go out into the middle of nowhere and live in his uh, three bedroom um, brick veneer yeah. home. He wants yeah. to be in the middle of Hawthorne, uh, and that's or she, and that's the um, uh, that that's really the core market. And I would argue that's probably the core market that's driven the 7.6% growth over that 40-year period. And I, I think it will probably re repeat itself too. The, the question then is really where is the money going uh, if it hasn't been attracted to that apartment market? And I think if we look over the last 10 years, uh, because houses started off relatively uh, cheaper than what they are today, I think people pushed themselves and got into a house. And then we look at the new supply that's where I think we've been lulled into that as well. But I agree mm. with you, Chris, that the quality has to come up, particularly as now we can't build developments and just purely target overseas buyers. Uh, and that's going to push prices up too, right? Because yeah. we now yeah. can't build a two-bedroom and sell it for five fifty, dollars Because of the finish and the cost and the risk and et cetera, et cetera, we're going to have to charge 700 So all of a sudden now, that's the new price point for a two-better uh, whereas that new stock was really pulling down the the price. Yeah, How exactly. could you sell an older style apartment for eight hundred if a new one is selling for five fifty? You just can't do it. It retards that growth, and that's been that that's not a permanent trend. We we can see that 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 can't persist, but mainly because they've changed the rules around selling to overseas buyers. So we know that trend's going to to reverse, uh, and that'll push prices higher as well. So, Stuart, one of the things that you wanted to consider when you started this uh, research was, you know, should people be divesting um, if they've got an investment grade? And, and you know, the answer is if you don't have investment grade, you should seriously consider divesting. But yeah. what was what was your your sort of decision on that? What did, where did you land? Uh, I landed at the, the there's been a number of events that have occurred over the last 10 years that are unique uh, and unlikely to persist over the next 10 years that have contributed probably to the underperformance of that asset sub-asset class. And so my view would be hang on. Uh, and I've spoken to property investors, you know, that have, and we've all had our own experiences with properties where you sometimes hold a property for 10 years and you really don't see much growth. Yeah. And, and some you can buy, uh, and within five years, you've seen tremendous uh, amount of growth. Um, but what you're really doing is buying an asset that's going to give you perpetual growth on average over long term. You know, I'm going to buy a property and I'll hold it for 30 years because I, I know holding it for 20 or 30 years, that's where I really get that compounding capital growth. That's really where the money's made. Um, so I'm not that concerned about the distribution of growth. What I'm more concerned is buying an asset that's going to give me, like I said, over, the, over that 40-year period, 7.6%, and that's just the median growth rate of apartments in Melbourne, um, and 7% in Sydney. You know, that that's just median. So if I apply some characteristics, I'll outperform that median. Uh, yeah. And if I can get that on average, 7% plus growth on average over the next 40 years, it's going to take care of itself. It's going to work. 
just some investments need patience and it's very difficult to do. You really want that initial spurt of growth when you first purchase an asset, particularly if you're a first-time investor. Yes. So it's, it's really challenging, but we know property is a long-term asset and we know it moves in cycles. It's a very observable trend with that. So we just have to have that patience. That's it. Stay the course. Now, Stuart, have you got a Dumbo for us? Uh, one that's, uh, well, one that we've, I guess we've been talking about already uh, coincidentally, but uh, something that, that have really driven uh, share markets in my mind uh, over the last uh, year or so. Uh, and it's the, it's the idea around uh, investing with momentum or investing with quality, going with what's popular uh, or just going with what's uh, quality. I was reading a Bloomberg article this morning about um, sort of explaining you know, they're saying the Robin Hood effect in the share market in the US that, you know, people's at home, uh, they can't go and do their normal activities, they're kind of yep. locked down. So why don't we have a bit of a gamble? Let's go and buy some Tesla stock. It just keeps rising. Uh, yep. Why don't we participate in that? We get our um, checks in the mail from the government, although they, they, they've um, uh, Trump sort of slowed that up uh, a little bit. You know, why don't we do that? Uh, and there was a if it's a if it's a leverage trade, then what actually has to happen is there's got to be more money. So I invest a thousand dollars, but maybe someone's got to invest ten thousand if it's a leverage trade. Anyway, that's what the article was explaining. Uh, and so you look like an idiot, really, if you hadn't invested in Tesla a year ago or Afterpay yeah. a year ago. You know, you look at that and go, oh, "What an idiot!" You know, I, I could have, I could have made if I had to put a thousand dollars in, I would have had a ten times return or something like that. So, <laughs> yeah. um, and that's what's really driving the mar- the, the share market. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of not not uh, at a uh, total market level, but the, you know, there's segments in that in that market that are driving a lot of those returns. And you do see it to some degree in property, although because the entry exit costs to it to a lesser extent. And um, and so uh, the Dumbo is getting sucked into that. And yeah. to some degree, uh, we can apply it to the apartment, older style apartment sort of conversation as well about going with the trends or going mm. with what's fundamental. Mm. And there's a lot being written at the moment, or at least over the last couple of years, about value investing is dead. It's not going to work anymore. <laughs> you know, it's all mm. about, it's not about anymore you know, how much profit a company makes, like that's not its value. Yeah. Really? <laughs> like that's just moronic. So you're going to get trends. There's always been trends. Yeah. There's always and and the the evidence um and the the commentary and the hysteria around it is is often very compelling. Well it yes. wouldn't be working if it wasn't compelling. So you, it makes you sort of question is this really the right approach? Maybe I should mm. should buy some afterpay stock. Maybe it's going to go to two hundred dollars a share, or, or maybe I should go and buy in. You know, you can't you can't find a property in a coastal location actually on the market in Victoria at the moment. So maybe it's going to go nuts and everyone's going to leave the city. Let's do that. But really, yeah. the so the Dumbo is um, almost uh, go against what's popular. What's popular will drive returns in the in the short run. What you really want to be interested in is driving returns in the long run. Uh, yeah. And that might mean that your decisions are relatively unpopular at times, uh, but they tend to be the better de- decisions. Case in point, mining towns. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah, Boom. Yeah. <laughs> Weren't it's, they a trend? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was going to say there's been lots of them over the time, positive cash flow, uh, mining towns, uh, buying property in the US. You know, there's been, you know, almost, uh, almost oh, yes. every time over the last 20 years there's been a trend. Uh, but they've never persisted and what's fundamental uh, continues to sort of repeat itself over the long term 
Uh, but, you know, there's, there's going to be periods of time where it underperforms. I think the problem in property specifically where you've got the a lot of buyers agents do this. They don't call them trends. They call them strategies. <laughs> <laughs> I know we've had a few others like Granny Flats. Yes, uh, was it was a big one. Duplex, um, oh, you know, duplex entry. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a huge one we see. I mean, just the quantity strategy. You know, the property clock always um, sort of laugh at that as well because uh, apparently we're all on the same clock and we all move at the same speed and everything's yeah. perfect. Um, booms, and- busts, and. Um, timing yeah, is the only thing that get that makes timing with yeah. a G on the end is the only thing that makes a difference. It's like, yeah. oh, my a, God. It means you probably should buy and sell if you follow a property clock as well because you should buy the, you know, the down and sell yeah. at the top and pay stamp duty and pay selling costs and pay capital oh, gains tax. Because um, also predictable than, too, really. Yeah. Oh, ding, market's <laughs> yeah. open, bang. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your, your, the stories around Robin Hood, which is sort of a free share trading um and it's massive in the US, uh, is completely true. I've heard through friends and, um, you know, the amount of money that, you know, in the trading world they can see that's coming from, you know, the small end of town, like the big end town, the big investment funds. But it's actually people at home with not a lot of money um, and uh, who potentially have got, you know, 50, 100 or even just 5,000 and they're just literally investing and pumping up these stocks uh, that it's not the big end of town that usually pushes up prices of good assets. So, um, mm. and it, they 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 can't really control it because it's free trading. It's becoming like trading. So people are just literally coming in and out and and trying to make short term gains. And um, yeah, it's it's a really big impact on the market. Um, like Bitcoin was through the the big rise and potentially again now. So. Um, yeah, you've got to be very careful playing this sort of greater fool theory because you don't want to be the one that is the fool um, mm. where you kind of keep chasing the returns and at some point the light sort of hits and um, you're the one who's paid, you know, $100 for a share that intrinsically might be worth $10. Mm. Uh, it's a long way to the bottom um, mm. and uh, it moves fast. Mm. Yep. Musical chairs. But I do think that the one thing that I think is going to, you know, personally save apartments, which I, I didn't mention before, which I've, I've seen in Sydney and I think it will happen in Melbourne, is really the expat impact where people who come to Australia who aren't from Australia, um, you know, and they move to a city like Sydney or Melbourne, you know, moving to a regional area just isn't on the cards for them. You know, mm. they, they want to live around the city, hence why, and they love the city and they love the culture. Um, and, you know, if anything's going to happen after covid I think that our migration will be extremely strong um, mm. and the government will, will take that sort of ticket because it's it's a way to buy growth for the country. And, um, you know, and so a lot of people on high incomes, Australia is even more desirable than it was, say, two years ago, let's say. <laughs> um, and so I think that's going to be, if anything, it's going to drive the apartment prices more than, say, people who are born here, live here. Mm, particularly in Melbourne, given it's so much better than Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also been a, a, a big thing for migration, right? A lot of mm-hmm. it has had a bigger share of through universities and uh, it's also got a bigger um, portion of the migration moves to Melbourne as a percentage. Yep. Right. Well, on that note, and, um, you know, I'm a fence sitter with that just quietly in terms of which is the better city. Um <laughs> So, but I've never actually lived in Melbourne, so I haven't actually tested the side of me that thinks Melbourne might be better to live in. But uh, I have to say we do have some pretty beautiful landscape up here and the weather is 
quite compelling. So I'll uh, ask how you're feeling about that in July, Stuart, or maybe <laughs> August. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I was prepared to leave. <laughs> yeah, there you were. <laughs> Thank you so much, Stuart. Uh, appreciate, always appreciate your uh, insights. And uh, we'll put the link to your report at the end of the show notes. And, uh, you know, Happy New Year. Yeah, thank you very much. A really enjoyable chat. Appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Thanks a lot. Join us for our next episode. We're talking all about smart homes. Are we really moving into the age of the Jetsons or are people getting all caught up in the latest gadget and it's all really, really useless and just gimmicky? And ultimately, if you invest in things like smart devices and smart hardware for your home, does it add value? Will buyers pay more for it when you go to sell? Join us next episode. We interview Brett Saville, CEO of Quantify Technology and make up your own mind as usual. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.